Welcome to Podcast of Ideas. I'm Alistair Donald. I'm co-convener of Battle of Ideas Festival. The controversies plaguing the civil service in recent years show little sign of abating. The news that Sue Gray, the former high-ranking official and author of the inquiry into the Downing Street Party scandal, is to take up a position as Labour Party Chief of Staff has caused consternation, even amongst some Labour-favouring commentators and within the civil service itself. Meanwhile, the lockdown files published by The Telegraph and based on the leaked WhatsApp messages of former Health Secretary Matt Hancock have revealed the politicised nature of some top civil servants. In the words of one commentator, the Cabinet Secretary and Head of the Civil Service, Simon Case, was shown to be as political as the politicians, and in some cases even more so. To get to grips with the seeming meltdown of one of our most important institutions, at the festival I chaired the debate No Minister, Crisis in the Civil Service, which brought together four insightful commentators to explore whether the Whitehall machine is broken beyond repair. The UK civil service has long been referred to as the Rolls-Royce of institutions, a kind of well-oiled machine that ranks amongst the best in the world. Recently, however, you can barely open a newspaper every day and fail to see enormous questions over how the civil, civil service works. It's under intense criticism, for example, for embracing woke causes such as gender ideology and identity politics. Civil servants' enthusiasm for working at home, uh, seemingly to the detriment of public service, has been a bit, very big talking point. Everywhere, even where there's a seeming success story in the civil service, with, with something like the delivery of the vaccines uh, over the last couple of years, for example. You might have noticed Kate Bingham in the serialisation of her book uh, in, the, in the papers last week, which was you know, kind of excoriating about the civil service, what she said, actually. And, and the, the extent to which she felt that it almost put the delivery of a vaccine at risk. And, of course, some would say the criticisms of the civil service are overblown. I don't know if some, any of you saw the criticisms of Liz Truss who uh, argued that there was a strain of anti-Semitism within the civil service which many people sort of thought well, not really much evidence for that. Others have said the civil service is being scapegoated for politicians' own failings um, and with the chaos of politics just now, you know, who could blame people for making that accusation? So we can discuss some of that stuff and, and and, and lots of other questions, kind of, is the Whitehall machine broken beyond repair? Are civil servants being unfairly blamed? Uh, has it become over-politicised? Why is that? If so, what's wrong with civil servants using their skill and experience to uh, make judgments and to challenge political decision-making? So we want to try and really get to grips over the next hour and a half with, with some of these questions. To introduce my panel, in the order that they're going to speak. On my immediate left is Nick Busby, OBE. He's a consultant, founding partner for Herminius Holdings. He's town councillor in Seven Oaks, a former diplomat at the Foreign and Commonwealth Office with 25 plus years' experience uh, in many different roles. Finally, he's an advisory board member for the very excellent briefings on Britain 
Second, we'll be hearing from, on my far right, Max Wind-Cowie, who's the co-author of A Place for Pride. He's the former head of Progressive Conservatism Project at Demos, and he's worked in a variety of different uh, public affairs and policy positions um, for people like the Charity Commission, a regular commentator in the, in the, in the press. Thirdly, we'll hear from Caroline Fisk, who's the co-founder and spokesperson for Conservatives for Women, set up in 2019, to fight the impact of gender ideology on government policy and within the Conservative Party. Um, And finally, on my immediate right, we'll hear from Eric Kaufman, who's a professor of politics, Birkbeck College, uh, University of London, advisory council member of the Free Speech Union, and the author of a number of different books, but I'm just going to mention one, The Political Culture of young Britain. So welcome to you all. Can we just uh, give them a round of applause? I'm sure you'll still be applauding them at the end as well. (laughs) So Nick, off you go. Thanks, Alistair. Of course, my most important role is as a flying instructor. But uh, Sorry, so, didn't mention that. Um, <laughs> so what is going on in the civil service? I spent almost 30 years in the Foreign Office. I suppose the secret to success in any organisation is consistently good decision-making underpinned by a strong organisational culture. Government policy and decision-making is based on the interplay between elected politicians and their civil servants. Politicians are held to account by voters. There is less obvious accountability in the civil service. There are instead assumptions that we have a civil service that is both impartial and effective. But is it impartial and effective? And who holds it to account when things go wrong? I mean, I think there's a strong argument to be made that we are far too complacent about the effectiveness of our civil service machine. For example, over the last 20 years, we've seen regulatory failures associated with the global financial crisis and now in connection with um, uh, uh, liability-driven investment strategies. We've seen various intelligence and policy failures over Iraq. We've seen um, the foot-dragging in the civil service on Brexit, uh, an inability to grip illegal immigration, NHS increasing NHS failure despite the amount of money we're putting into it. Uh, on lockdown, another sort of project fear approach that stifled consideration of lockdown harms to health, the economy, children's education, mental health, and so on. And growing concerns about the quality of planning underpinning the transition to net zero. All these case, in all these cases, it's not good enough just to blame the politicians. The civil service should bear its share of responsibility. So, so what's going on? What I'm going to do in the very limited time available is just to pick up a few themes. So one of my themes is the triumph of process over delivery. During my time as a civil servant, it became clear that process was increasingly valued over delivery. Process was at times in danger of becoming an end in itself. And that, of course, is because delivery is hard to do. A former civil servant, Neil Wellham, with 30 years service, summed it up very well in a letter to The Telegraph in 2020, when he observed um, uh, in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic that this had exposed some fundamental decision-making weaknesses in the machinery of government in Britain. He saw this as a consequence of the modernising government programme that started 20 years ago. Since then, the balance between trust and experience on the one hand and process and scrutiny on the other had been damagingly shifted towards the latter. It was not uncommon for almost the entire upper management tier of executive agencies and non-departmental public bodies to comprise very able people who had no practical experience of the area that they oversaw. 
worse, their approach tended to be resource-intensive, inflating the number of senior management posts um, and distracting staff from doing the job. In short, he flagged the, the lack of real experience at the top. My second theme would be loss of impartiality. The reaction of the establishment, not least the senior civil servants, to Brexit was what prompted me to join briefings for Brexit in early 2019, which is now briefings for Britain. I remember a low point that August when Lord Kerslake, who headed the Home Civil Service 2012-14, to proposed during a Radio 4 Today interview that the civil service should bypass the government in order to avoid a no-deal Brexit. He also spoke to The Guardian's Polly Toynbee, who quoted him as saying, we are reaching the point where the civil service must consider putting its stewardship of the country ahead of service to the government of the day. In that same August, I wrote of one BFB piece that there are circumstances in which civil service, civil servants can become consciously or unconsciously politicised in their approach to implementing government policy, which is bad for civil service culture. And I cited one senior serving official, a closet leaver, who told me in 2017 that anyone outing themselves as a leave voter in his particular department was liable to be, his word, persecuted. The civil service code is good and very clear on impartiality, but how often are staff trained on it? To what extent do our most senior civil service servants actually feel bound by it? Um, my third theme is a disdain for democracy. I worry that the establishment reaction to Brexit since 2016 has constituted a crossing of the line from the proper to the improper, from the democratic to the anti-democratic. I think part of the problem comes from an establishment mindset that has developed over the past quarter of a century or so about what it is that constitutes the national interest. Put simply, if we, the establishment, are all agreed on what the national interest is, then one might be forgiven for concluding that cleaving to that national interest rises above mere party politics and is, in that sense, impartial. During the Blair years, a comfortable consensus emerged about what was right for Britain. That vision encompassed elements such as membership of the EU, globalism, unrestrained immigration, the power of big government. When he became Prime Minister, David Cameron implicitly acknowledged this when he talked about being the heir to Blair. <coughs> So civil service reliance on an interpretation of national interest that is at odds with repeated electoral evidence, not to mention government policy, looks highly questionable, as does the increasing habit of claiming cabinet divisions as an excuse for civil service non-compliance with declared government policy. And quickly, my two final themes are groupthink. Groupthink is not good for effective decision-making, as we've seen in relation, e.g., to Iraq, where I served, lockdown, Brexit, and net zero. The groupthink issue is reinforced by a cultural tendency to groom civil service leaders who are people like us, and if you're not one of us, you're likely to face problems. Here is a nice quote, just picking up on what Alistair was saying earlier on, from Kate Brigham, who said... If I'd been asked the question, what is the biggest threat to the success of the vaccine task force, the honest answer would have been large parts of the rest of Whitehall. And then finally, wokery. For those of us brought up and serving during the Cold War, the politics that underpin, for example, Black Lives Matter, critical race theory are familiar. They're about imposing one set of ideas and values and cancelling anything that departs from the party line. It is also about exerting power and control over others. Treating staff fairly and promoting on merit is the duty of any organisation. 
Claiming diversity outcomes in place of core departmental delivery targets looks more like costly and wasteful displacement activity. There are also there's also a non-impartial political dimension to it. As I warned in an article last year, identity politics and impartial reality are not compatible. And just in case I'm accused of being a culture war-focused Tory dinosaur, here is a quote... <laughs> Uh, here's a quote from a recently retired civil servant uh, who told me this last week. If the unmeritocratic, woke HR policy that my department is currently applying continues, the department as a whole will fail to deliver what taxpayers expect and will be wholly irrelevant in 10 to 15 years' time. In conclusion... The upper echelons of the civil service are increasingly filled by people for whom process, wokery, uh, people like us groupthink, risks trumping delivery. All this means that when the crises hit, civil service leaders, leaders are not as well equipped as they might be to deliver. Our once great Rolls-Royce civil service is at risk of turning to a metro, mini-metro. Responsibility for organisational culture and effectiveness lies with that organisation's leadership. The first challenge is to accept that there are problems of the kind I've outlined and then go about addressing them. If that cannot be done internally, then reform will have to be imposed from the outside. Sorry. Thanks, Nick. That, that was really useful, actually, just in kind of setting out uh, some, well, what you think are the problems, and, and I think there's so much in there that we can come back to and discuss. Um, so, who did I say was next? It was Max, wasn't it? Max. Hello. Um, I am, I've been speaking at Battle of Ideas for nearly ten years, and normally my role is to come and be the very soggy centrist, so that people like <laughs> can say, you know, what they need to say, and I can go, oh, well, that's not quite fair. But I agree with almost everything Nick just said, actually, oh. which is very bad for the panel composition. Yeah. But um, nonetheless, yeah. So look, um, uh, Battle of Ideas always manages to do debates that are timely, and this feels very timely because we are all of us living to some extent, in a lived experience reality game of what happens when a government decides to entirely jack any of the experience or institutional memory of the civil service and instead just plough a, a path of, of ideological um, uh, furrow. But that said, I think I would certainly agree that there are significant and substantial problems with the way in which the civil service operates, and I think that those are getting worse. I'm not going to dwell much on some of the more, I think you use the phrase culture war stuff, um, Nick, but I think that Nick is right about a lot of that and the institutional capture that you have seen across government departments by organisations seeking to uh, not just you know, sort of um, make for more inclusive environments within government departments, but actually to shift government policy through engagement. Um, in particular, I'm thinking of Stonewall and what amounts to essentially a protection racket to change the direction of government policy, um, I think that those are very insidious and that the institutional capture that's been experienced in the civil service is uh, really very problematic and creates enormous problems. But I said I wouldn't go on about that, so I won't. So <laughs> I, um, I worked briefly in the civil service. I had a much less illustrious career than Nick in the civil service. I was seconded into the National Infrastructure Commission for 18 months under the glorious government of Theresa May. And my job was to coordinate between the National Infrastructure Commission 
and the Metro Mayors and Combined Authorities that dot the great cities of Great Britain, and government departments like Treasury and Department of Transport, in order to try and get everyone to agree to some stuff that we might build on the basis that it's quite good if you build stuff that serves um, the people of Britain. And a lot of work went into that, both in the Commission and with all these, you know, sort of... Uh, very um, passionate local elected authorities, you know, people with massive mandates, right? Andy Burnham, Andy Street, these are democratically elected people with enormous personal mandates to achieve change if for the places where they live and where they're from. And what I discovered in my 18 month tenure of doing this job, during which time we managed to get nothing agreed, nothing secured, nothing certainly built, was that there is an almost perverse attachment to saying no that resides in our civil service. And not just saying no, but saying that the very question you're asking is ridiculous. That investment in transport infrastructure in order to link up Manchester so that it doesn't take longer to get from an outer suburb of Manchester to the centre than it does from the centre of Manchester to London is a ridiculous request, a ridiculous question. Here's my model. The model tells you it's ridiculous. I put the numbers in, and at the end of the numbers, uh, something's come out that says, no, without any, any <laughs> willingness to engage with the idea that the model might be wrong, that the numbers you put in might be wrong, or even, and I know this is a ghastly thought, but that not everything might be about the numbers going in or the numbers coming out. Some of it just might be about whether or not people in Bury can get into central Manchester. So that was my experience of working in the civil service. And it isn't as exciting or as sexy as some of the cultural stuff, but I think it's really important because I think it's part of the reason why in this country we can all see that not only do things not work, but progress doesn't get made. And that is a real problem if we're going to encourage people to believe that the political system in which they operate and live is going to be able to deliver for them at any point. One place where I think I probably do disagree, just to inject us, and I know this is you know, supposed to have some sort of controversy and all this, uh, you know, I think Nick let the politicians off the hook a little bit here, right? I see the civil service, particularly the centralised civil service, the people who work around here, I see them almost as sort of like a single-cell organism, right? And single-cell organisms reproduce, and they reproduce with all the same genetics and mutations and prejudices and presumptions as their forebears. And no one blames them either for reproducing and never doing anything different. That's their natural state of affairs. But there is a political class in this country. There is an elected group of people whose job it is, in part, to get a handle on what the civil service is doing, to prevent the civil service from being captured by ideological interest groups, to prevent the civil service from inventing a whole series of elaborate algebraic formula that allow them to say no to everyone who asks them to do anything different on any given day of the week. We elect these people, in part, so that the Rolls-Royce civil service, you know, which was mentioned earlier, can be driven. And it isn't being driven. And part of the reason for that, I'm afraid, is that our politicians are getting worse. And I don't mean worse in terms of they're all bad people, although obviously some of them are. And I don't mean worse even in terms of their politics and their political ideologies being immoral in some way, although obviously some of them are. I mean that our politicians are getting worse in a pure and practical way. They're getting worse at doing their job. And they're getting worse at delivering. They're getting worse at being effective. And that is a massive problem. And that is what allows a massive, complex, but in the end self-interested institution like the civil service to carry on metastasizing and to carry on reproducing itself because our political class is failing us by not doing the things that it needs to do to deliver. And part of the reason for that, before I shut up, because I'm sure I've used up much more than my allotted time. You know, just one, one minute. 
There we are. See? I'm a pro. Robert Saunders, um, the historian, made the point today that of the 22 MPs in Cameron's first Conservative Cameron in 2015, only nine were still in the Commons four years later. Of the 26 MPs that made first Cabinet in 2016, only half are still MPs, and only four of them are in Cabinet. Now, longevity does not make people effective. That is not what I'm claiming. But to use a to torture the Rolls-Royce allegory, we have people who are supposed to be driving this car who are still at the spotty teenager driving lessons phase of their engagement with the practical reality of running something. Anyway, that's what I have to say. Brilliant. Thank you very much. started off by saying I agree with everything and then he proceeded to disagree. <laughs> neat trick, Max, and, and some useful points as well, which I think we need to, to come back to. Caroline, uh, your thoughts, please. Okay, so currently I'm a single-issue person. Um, my single issue is gender ideology, and so that's what I'm going to focus on today. Um, it's the capture of our public institutions by gender ideology. Our major corporations, our universities, our charities our art institutions, and the civil service. The civil service participates in the notion that we all here have an inner gender identity that should be prioritised over our sex. The implications are obvious, political, and contentious. It means the end to women's single-sex spaces, a cavalier approach to safeguarding vulnerable young people, a profound attack on science and and an attack on free speech. So coming from the civil service, what does gender ideology mean? While the Ministry of Justice accepts that trans-identifying male sex offenders should be placed in women's prisons. The NHS allows vulnerable young women to register as male with their GP. Actual house professionals participating in fantasy rather than taking their safeguarding role with these young people seriously. Via Annex B, the NHS allows trans-identifying males to self-ID into women's hospital wards, never mind the privacy and dignity of women, let alone their consultation or their consent. And the Department of Education produced a 2019 Relationship and Sex Education Guidance, which literally requires schools to teach our kids about gender identity. I could go on and on, but I will run out of time. So when I was invited to speak here today, I wasn't sure how I could participate constructively. Of course the public sector has been politicised. Of course the civil service is involved in promulgating a profoundly unscientific political ideology which no political party openly endorsed by an election manifesto and which has never been subjected to democratic scrutiny, let alone consent. So what could I say today? Well, while in the middle of this quandary, I came across a letter in the Times. It's written by Sir David Normington, Home Office Permanent Secretary. So I'm just going to read a small part of it out. Sir, if you cannot get your way in government, attack the civil service. Throw in a few slurs about metropolitan elites. The Prime Minister and the Chancellor have sent a clear message to the civil service that they're not interested in its impartial advice. They intend to surround themselves with yes-men. That is a sure route to bad decision-making and weak government. It's also another small step on the road to politicising the civil service. While reading that letter, I thought Sir Normington and I are living on different planets. He really seems to believe that the civil service is politically neutral, that it gives impartial advice, which is about to be imperiled. 
Now, if that is true, I guess it means that we are all queer theorists now. <laughs> that the debate is already lost. We should all today be wearing our pronoun badges. I'm looking around for them. <laughs> okay, but then I looked at the dates, and Sir Normington was around in 2006 to 2010. And then I went to the Conservative Party conference, <coughs> and I spoke to two ex-senior senior civil servants and an ex-chancellor about what I might say today. I said that the Conservative Party had presided over 10 years of deep political capture of the public sector by gender ideology. And the thing is that both of these people said to me, no, it is much more recent than that. And of course that aligns with Sir Norrington's letter. This extreme political capture in the civil service is actually still very new. With respect to gender ideology, it actually only really held sway for the last three or four years. And a lot of the policy implications, which I listed before, came about when Penny Morden was in charge of the Government Equality Office and her LGBT plus action plan. So that gave me hope. And it brings me to the question I would like to ask my fellow panelists and anybody from the civil service here today. The Maya Forstadter ruling in 2021 made clear that gender critical views are protected in the workplace. So public sector, public servants can speak out. So the next time the Ministry of Justice is mulling its transgender prison policy, a public servant could say, has it ever occurred to any of you to actually consult the female prisoners? And the next time the Department of Education is considering, as was reported in the Times the other day, that classrooms of schoolgirls should stand aside and wait while a trans-identifying boy uses their changing room, a woman working for the Department of Education could say, has it occurred to you that the boy could get changed with the boys, like he's always done? What kind of message does it give to kids if actual adults with a safeguarding role endorse the idea that those children might have been born in the wrong body? So my worry is that despite force factor, we don't seem to be seeing this active challenge in the civil service. I think if we could get it happening, the whole house of cards would quickly come tumbling down. Why weren't civil servants, junior and senior, actively debating gender ideology last week at lunchtime or in their meetings? Why won't they be doing it next week? Something is holding them back. I really want to understand what it is. I'd like to point out that now, every single day, particularly since the Respect My Sex campaign, the mainstream press is carrying stories about the madness and the harms of gender ideology. So what is holding back rigorous debate and challenge in the civil service? So my summary is this. <coughs> yes, the civil service has been woefully captured by awful, unscientific, regressive, political nonsense. But the worst elements, or the bits that I follow closely, are actually very new. And we can't be waiting for new legislation or someone else brave to pull down the House of Cards. Only we, all of us, every single one of us, can participate in doing that. But something is stopping us, or I should say it's stopping those of us that work in the civil service. Despite force factor, we somehow or other are clouded by some kind of collective fog that is preventing free speech and open debate within the civil service. What is it? If we could identify it, we might get somewhere. Okay, thank you. Sounds like a challenge, that last sentence. Um, Eric, your thoughts. Great, great. Thanks very much. Uh, so I, I can't claim to be a, an expert on the civil service per se. My, my father was a Canadian diplomat. That's probably the... And my, my other half 
worked for a quango here, so that's probably the closest I've gotten to it. But I, I want to make a broader point, which is, and I really want to focus on the wokery angle, okay? I mean, and, and, and how that manifests itself in institutions whose employees uh, predominantly have degrees. Because I don't think the civil service is unique. I think it is part of a wider problem. Um, first, I want to say, you know, what is wokeness? And I always say that is a real term that refers to something real. It, it refers to the sacralization of historically marginalized race, gender, and sexual identity groups. That is wokeness, which is a religious form of our dominant ideology, which I term cultural socialism. Now, this ideology is, is about two things. It's about uh, protection of identity groups from harm, including emotional harm or perceived uh, offense. And secondly, it's about equal outcomes uh, in terms of power, in terms of self-esteem, in terms of a whole range of outcomes. So that is this ideology of cultural socialism, where that comes into conflict with concepts such as truth, beauty, uh, freedom of speech, etc it takes precedence over these things. So that progressive illiberalism comes out of that value system of cultural socialism. And it is spreading into our elite institutions, increasingly as these institutions recruit members of the millennial and Gen Z generations, it is spreading even more. And I'm going to put some numbers on some of these, uh, because I'm a numbers guy, as I already made clear. So. Um, the first thing about the civil service, is it a hotbed of wokeness? Well, no more so necessarily than other organizations. So we know from YouGov survey data, which is quite large scale, the, if we take uh, leave and remain, the per per percentages is about 66% remain against 22, 23% leave, 3 to 1 in government. Uh, but that's pretty similar in the private sector. In, in media and marketing, PR and advertising, it's, it's 4 to 1, 70% remain against 17% lead. So it's not that the civil service differs that much in its recruitment from other kinds of, say, from the private sector. That's not so much the issue. I mean, it is a problem, but it is not as much the issue. We can look at organizations like the police, uh, the military, and we can see wokery even in those institutions, which have a very different recruitment pool. Um, why are the Merseyside police saying being offensive is an offense? Um, why do we have non-crime hate incidents? Police um, covering themselves in, in pride uh, insignia, taking the knee and so forth. This is the police. Their recruitment is very different. Um, and so I don't actually think it is just a matter of who's coming into these bodies. We've got a problem, I think, with public morality in general. And what I mean by that is, you know, if we're, if we're talking about religious fundamentalism, Right? Religious fundamentalism works because the society is religious. And it's very hard to talk back to somebody who says men and women shouldn't be mixing, you shouldn't be drinking and dancing because it says so in the Quran or in the Bible. Very hard to answer back to that if you're already a believer. So I think when we talk about woke fundamentalism, we have to understand that they're tapping into the tissue of public morality, which is very conducive to their claims. How do you answer back against diversity, inclusion, anti-racism. What's your answer going to be when they roll out these terms, even if they are uh, defined in a much broader way than you would define them? It's very difficult because that has been institutionalized as public morality since the mid-1960s. Shelby Steele, the Ameri African-American scholar, wrote a very interesting book called White Guilt about when anti-racism became a taboo in the United States in the mid-1960s. All of a sudden, there was a major push from 
big corporations, from government, to signal, to virtue signal its anti-racism through policies like affirmative action um, and, and also through, uh, and, and I think what we're seeing now in terms of DEI is very much a continuity of this virtue signaling. We have moral legitimacy because we are anti-racist and we are therefore in tune with public morality. It is not just about blue-haired activists. So I think we really have to look at our taboos and we actually have to start looking at our public morality and saying, is it too narrow? Is it only focusing on what Jonathan Haidt would call the care, harm, and equality foundations to the exclusion of the other four moral foundations? Now, um, what I'd say in terms of solutions, okay, I actually think that the, the civil service, like other institutions that are populated by um, highly educated people, is being politicized. And what that means is, that we can no longer trust them the way we would if they reflected, if they were truly impartial. And that unfortunately means that we are going to have to start to centralize power away from these institutions. Um, even though that's not ideal, I think it is necessary. They are going to have to actually come under tighter government control and scrutiny because elected government, however imperfect, is the only institution that the mass of the public can control. And so if elected government says we're not going to have Stonewall in our public institutions, then those public institutions, I think, simply have to obey that. And I think that central government is going to have to get a lot more interventionist with these institutions. Impartiality has to be defined in much more detail. So concepts such as white privilege, systemic racism, affirmation of gender identity, those must be labeled political in guidance that is issued by government departments. They, they say, for example, teachers should be impartial. They don't define impartiality with the kind of granularity you need in order to squeeze out DEI. If you have any wiggle room, then the activists in these organizations are going to take it. So you've actually got to be very, very, very detailed in your guidance that you issue. And you have to enforce that. Um, also, I think that we need to see what I would call equivalent action on political discrimination, political equity, political diversity. If we're going to do race and gender EDI, we're going to have to do political EDI. So we're going to have to look at what is the political composition of our workforce, if you want, don't want to do any EDI, that's fine. But if you're going to do race and gender, you've, I, in my view, you've got to do equivalent action on politics. Final, um, minute. final minute, I will say, is that, again, uh, there's a problem with young people. And I'm sorry to say it, because I know there are a lot of young people here. Um, I've got a, a report coming out with Policy Exchange probably in a week or so. I'll just give you one stat from a survey of, um, that we conducted should J.K. Rowling be dropped by her publisher uh, because her views are offensive to trans people? You know, if you take people over 50, it's 85% no versus less than 5% yes. If you take people 18 to 25, it's 50-50. That, as those people enter our institutions, we are going to have a bigger and bigger and bigger problem. And I think until we get a hold of that issue, uh, and until we start to make it very clear what we stand for, that we stand for cultural liberalism and not cultural socialism, this problem is only going to get worse. So we're only at the beginning, really, of a time bomb. Thanks. Thank you.
again, I thought that was very useful actually, okay. and 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 um, a slightly different perspective. So I think we, you know, we can pick up lots of these questions along the way in the discussion. Um, I, I think impartiality is an interesting issue. I, 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 I for my mind money, um, kind of explaining the decline of impartiality actually becomes quite important than, rather than just recognising that it's a problem. I mean, uh, you, we have all these questions around public duty, for example, and things like that that haven't quite come out yet. I think Max is right to raise the question of the politics of it all and the politicians, so perhaps we could uh, come to that and ask ourselves, are the civil servants just copping all the blame for something that's a, a, a broader problem? Anyway, I want to come straight out uh, and gather some questions then I'll come back uh, and we'll, so we'll gather a round of questions and then I'll come back so I might as well just start at the front yes um, can you just use the microphone so yeah. we can so, get it on the hi, recording um, I wanted to um, answer Caroline's question um, I'm in a non-departmental government organisation but we've just founded a cross-vital sex equality and equity network which is about putting you know making sex matter rather than and kind of fighting against gender ideology. But we've done this because a number of us in all lots of different departments find we can't have those conversations in our own departments without being labelled as transphobes. So what we're doing now is trying to get together in, in an organisation uh, which, you know, Cabinet Office has agreed, we hope we'll have a senior civil service champion and we hope we can really start from the inside to make a difference with that. Uh, no, hang on, hang on, hang on. Do you want to just pass it back? Yes. I'll let you come back at the end. <laughs> Thank you very much. And on top of your point, actually, I, uh, I'm a civil servant as well in the front office. We have a whole um, load of civil servants in there. <laughs> <laughs> very interesting. Very interesting <laughs> um, and I'm really interested to discuss impartiality, actually, because I think that Exactly as you said, uh, if civil servants would be impartial in practice, we would have a much better civil servants. And um, I would also like to argue a little bit against the focus on senior civil servants only, because I think it comes from interns, from you know young graduates that are being recruited, and to young civil servants. And you know it is about a culture war. It is about the culture we live in, and you know as we have everywhere in every institution the issue with, you know, sort of like 70% of people having a specific uh, political view or cultural view uh, is the same in the civil service and that's natural. But what happens with the young civil servants I think is really important as well and sort of this value of impartiality to be imposed and to be generally dismissed from your job if you demonstrate constantly that you are not able to hold your political and cultural views to yourself in your workplace at least. Not to say about social media where nobody's really respecting the code anymore. Um, and I've seen this, for instance, I, I used to be in the XCU in the Department for Ex in the European Union, and there are all this sort of um, biases, um, and, and you know, as, as we all know, that the vast majority of people in the XCU and in, in civil service are were predominantly uh, remainers that did show in the policy making at the lower levels as well, which the lower levels go to the higher levels as you know. Um, so I was just wondering, to sum up, because I'm 
Romina. And what advice would you give to young civil servants um, in terms of upholding impartiality? How should we, do you think we should speak up when we notice, even in more senior civil servants, that uh, we notice that it's not demonstrated in practice? Or should we sort of shut up and be partial ourselves <laughs> in all levels, including at work, and uh, sort of wait to be seniors ourselves in order to be able to change, if any? <laughs> okay, thanks. So, uh, there's a hand at the back there, there's another one there, and then panel, I'm going to come back and we'll pick up some thoughts. Yes? Hi there. Um, this is a question, a general question, and Eric and I have had this debate lots and lots of times. And that is, we keep talking about the, uh, the impressions of these things, but and there's, a, there's the old cliche that culture is downstream or politics is downstream from culture, but also law has a, a the legal system has a, a role in this. And in particular, the manifestations of these things often come from the Equality Act, in particular the public sector equality duty, and in particular the subjective elements of that of that section 149. So it's almost mandated in some senses in terms of the protected characteristics and the mission creep that you get within these, in, in, in institutions, universities, the civil service, etc., in, in relation to how quality of opportunity, which is what the law actually states, becomes a quality of outcome. And it's in that space of the, of the public sector called the duty that so many of these leaders and institutions dance in relation to imposing working. So we can keep doing a whack-a-mole, like decolonizing the curriculum and gender and blah, 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 but underneath it all is a legal value context. And that legal value context is the Equality Act. Until you kneecap, or at least go against, or deconstruct the public sector equality in section 149, which these people dance on that to do this kind of stuff, you're going to keep basically playing whack-a-mole. Okay, thank you. And yes, final one for now. Hello, my name is uh, Charles Bunker. Why does nobody love me? <laughs> Who can remember that phrase broadcast on a guy called Arthur Hughes? who died in 2020. Um, it was a child abuse case that saw him murdered. In 2004, we passed the Child's Act following the death of Victoria Clumby. And we just had, after the death of poor old Arthur Hughes, um, we had Annie Hudson's report. And Annie Hudson's report made it very, very clear that there had been a failure in the management of childcare services in this country for over 20 years. And nothing, nothing is done about it. Let me tell you also about Grenfell Tower. Anybody who listened to the BBC podcast will know that the man in charge of designing the rules for Grenfell Tower was told that uh, the cladding would cause deaths and he is reported to have been uh, said, show me the bodies. Now, we, don't have, we, we have a law in this country called misconduct in public office. Um, the Law Commission has just written a report suggesting a proposal for a new uh, law, and it is a complete and utter failure. Those people that fail us will not be prosecuted under the law that the Law Commission is proposing. Uh, gen ladies and gentlemen, it is an outright scandal that we cannot prosecute civil servants for their criminal failure in this country. 
Thank you for listening. Okay, thank you. So I'll come back out uh, again in a minute. But let's just um, deal with some of the, the, the questions that we've got so far. And I, I'd particularly like to deal, actually, with this impartiality thing um, that, that's come up a, a, a couple of times. Because, Nick, as a kind of uh, long-term work, you know, we're in the civil service for quite a long time, so perhaps you might have a view on it. But it seems to me that... Um, no, has it always been the case historically that there's no bias or impartiality in the civil service? I mean, it seems a bit difficult to believe that. I mean, you go back to think of the late 19th century and who it would have been staffed by then. It certainly would have been at odds with some of the, you know, the political figures coming through the day. Certainly in the, I'm pretty sure that in the 1960s. Uh, a very kind of upper class conservative civil servant would have been pretty much at odds with a lot of things that a Labour government wanted to do so there's a kind of uh, is is impartiality just something that's always there and you live with or is is there something distinctively new about it and kind of how does it emerge and, and, and kind of what, you know, how does it come about? I mean I, I was in the civil service from 1982 to 2011 so I'm like 11 years out of date I would say my experience during my professional career was that it was pretty impartial actually um, and people may have you know, people may have admitted to voting Labour or Conservative but I was never aware of it being a big deal you know, and we were uh, in my department anyway heavily focused on outcomes and judged on outcomes and delivery and um, uh, our HR department, for whom we relied to sort of monitor our career progression, they, well, at least they claimed they were focused on how effective we were uh, when they thought about where we were going to be posted and, um, uh, and how senior we were going to get. And um, that, I'm afraid, is changing. When I talk about organisational culture, I'm not trying to talk about the culture wars. You know, organisational culture is critical uh, for you know an organisation's effectiveness uh, and delivery, and and I think it's got a lot worse. And um, you know, people frankly have told me they are frightened, and these are grown-up people who served in, <laughs> served in war zones, but they genuinely believe now that if they stick their hand up and say the wrong thing their career prospects are going to be undermined. And when I talk about ideology and control, this is why you've got a lot of white middle-class people at the senior level of our mandarinate. You know, for them, it's just a brilliant control mechanism. I mean, it allows them to, you know, if, and, and, you know, the, the danger is that you provide the um, circumstances where people who are focused on their own careers and their own personal aggrandizement, which, I mean, twas ever thus to a certain extent, to climb up the greasy pole irrespective of delivery by using this kind of ideology. Um, and and I'm just on picking up on Max's point, I didn't talk about politicians because I wanted to talk about the civil service, but obviously, you know, at the moment, goodness gracious, you know, if you have poor politicians and a recalcitrant, biased civil service with an agenda, you, you've got real problems. And this country's got, you know, we're staring down the barrel of a gun at the moment in terms of the quality of government on both the political side <laughs> and the civil service side right now. It's, it's, it's scary. Sorry, I'll stop there. OK. Eric, um, I wanted to pick up on the, on the point about um, is it just the blue hairs? And, and kind of you, you made the point in your introduction 
that you thought it was a much more institutionalised problem. You sort of mentioned that uh, a lot of things started to change in the 60s. And certainly when I, um, when I was reading, uh, I don't know, it must have been about a year ago now, about the, the behaviour of the, who was then the permanent uh, undersecretary of the Home Office. So permanent undersecretary, we're not talking about blue hairs here. This is top-line uh, civil servants. Um, they were uh, the person that was most f foremost in, in forcing through a new race charter and refused to be uh, uh, to, to give way on that. So that sort of points to uh, the institutionalisation and, 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 and but, but I, I guess what I wondered from you is how how does that work then, that institutionalised problem? And I'm, I'm going to get Caroline to comment after about the kind of whether it is the blue hairs or not. But um, well, well, I think it's even broader than institutions. I mean, there, there's a whole literature in sociology on deviance. So how do we come up with our taboos? You know, why is sex before marriage no longer a taboo, or being gay no longer a taboo, but being accused of racism, you know, racism, sexism? transphobia are taboos. So there's a whole study of how things become taboos. It's through declarative speech acts that uh, certain things become taboo. So in what Steele was writing about was the mid-1960s anti-racism tabooing, which happened later in Britain, by the way. Once that taboo is in place, it gives an incredible amount of moral power to some groups, and it arguably is just a matter of time before people start weaponizing that moral power, that accusation of being a racist, expanding the definition of racism to mean being against immigration, being against affirmative action. So once you have that genie out of the bottle, and this is why I'm saying a lot of us would agree that you know, there should, it should be heavily discouraged for people to, to say nakedly racist things, but the problem in a way is once we take once we develop a taboo, we don't know where it's going to go. And I think this is a much deeper problem than you know, Twitter mobs and cancel culture. It is actually something we're going to have to reckon with. And I think it underlies all of the problems that we've got. It's much broader than any one institution. What it means is everybody is petrified of being accused of being a racist, a sexist, a transphobe, etc. And so they will do anything they can to either virtue signal that they're not or to not be accused of that. And as long as that climate exists, and what's happened, if you trace it from the 60s, is a gradual scaling up, a quantification um, of the weaponization. It's, so there were incidents in the mid-60s already. Uh, there was a report, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, on the, on the African-American family that was shelved by the Johnson administration. That's the first instance of this. But we, what's happened is the dial's been turned from about 6 or 7 out of 10 in the 60s to 11 out of 10. Uh, so yeah, I don't. I think we have to address that underlying problem of public morality, not just the cancellers. Okay, good. Yeah. Um, Max, just looking again at this this question of the interrelationship between the political sphere and the the civil service. Kind of, how, how does that work then? Because it it often seems to me that the way things are reported is 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 that just uh, civil servants take a. And in, you know, a dislike, basically, a personal, quite personalised dislike, actually, to to ministers, and then, um, and it's very, very 
clearly the case in the Home Office that that is <laughs> at least part of, of, of what happens. But why, what's the duty of the civil servant to the political sphere? Is it, is it a duty that's just uh, to that particular minister? Or is, it not, is there not something bigger in terms of the duty owed by civil servants to the political sphere? And, and is that why the politics is the problem, in your opinion, and not so much the civil service? So I think there's a couple of things there. I mean, in terms of the personal dislike question, I'm sure there are loads of civil servants who personally dislike the people they work for. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's, that's quite interesting. No, no, but let, allow me to... But historically, lots of people overrode that. Yes, and there's a difference between personal dislike and whether or not you get on well with Preeti Patel and actively deciding that you are going to do your utmost not to implement the policies <laughs> that Preeti Patel is the Home Secretary to, uh, to enact. And I think we have seen quite a bit of that. Um, and I'm not for a second in my lambasting of politicians trying to say that there are not major structural problems with the way in which the civil service conceives of its relationship to politics. I'm just saying that in the end the responsibility for fixing that lies with the people that we elect in order to drive the ship of state. I think that there is a um, in terms of what, what is the obligation of the civil there is an obligation that the civil service um, behave in the way that is most likely to deliver on the objectives of government, right? Because this is where we get into <coughs> trouble, right? So, so Preeti Patel says, I want to do X, and civil servant Y says, well, I'm not sure you should do that for all of these reasons. And on one side of that, you've got Preeti Patel understandably thinking, well, you're an intractable, nasty little git, no one elected you. And on the other side of it, you've got a civil servant going, you can't, I mean, this is just illegal and impractical and a really stupid thing to do. And what am I supposed to do if not accept immediate advice? And I do think that we have an issue where that's the end of that encounter as far as a lot of the civil service consider their role to be, as opposed to, okay, so you were elected in order to substantively reduce the flow of illegal immigration into the UK. I don't think sticking them on a jet to Uganda is necessarily going to achieve that objective, Minister, although obviously you can do it if you want to. Here are a set of ways we might be able to do that that I think probably fit better within the legal frame of your brain or whatever, you know? And I think that's a bit that sometimes is missing from that engagement that you describe, Alistair, between the politician and the political caste and the Mandarin caste. Okay, Caroline, there was a, you know, quite a direct question posed to you, so f feel free to answer it. But just in terms of, uh, I mean, your question on the fog of, you know, kind of why is it happening? I mean, is it just, you know, w would you not think that um, in if there's a kind of emptying out of a sense of values and public duty that exists within the civil service, then wouldn't it just be obvious that, people would fill that vacuum that comes down from a kind of gover government level and a, a kind of political ideological level which you know in many ways seems missing today and that the people within that or uh, you know the civil servant the, pe the people within those organizations would then um, set about filling the vacuum with something that, that uh, in your case you dislike because it's the gender ideology but nevertheless in their case it's, it's almost like is that just their sense of purpose and their sense of mission coming through? Well um, you've hit upon a much uh, bigger topic which is why are we all here? <laughs> <laughs> and um, I do think it's that time of the weekend already. <laughs> <laughs> so I do think it's a huge problem. Um, the emptying out of other senses of purpose, 
in the West, uh, the decline of religion, etc., the weakening of community and sense of family. If I'm not religious, I'm nevertheless here for my hometown and my community and everything else I love. And I sometimes think people like me who spend my time battling gender ideology, I might be far better off just putting all that to one side and focusing on positive narratives that, you know, that young people can look towards. And I know a lot of people say, well, we don't want a res resurrection of the great religions, but maybe we do, and if not that, what else? And I think we could all spend a lot more time on that. Um, just something on what Eric said, that whole um, the care-harm thing. I think what's wrong with that is um, it's women who are suffering, so it's not just a simple, oh, you know, we're all over-focusing on the care-harm debate, and it's all about, you know, caring for other people, because women are suffering, and so then you come to the sacralization, and you've got this kind of ranking of identity groups, and who comes out above the other one, and the question is why. And so I, I really love this issue in the civil service of if somebody says to you, well, I'm a, you know, you're a transphobe, I think we all need to get much better at saying, actually, no, there are other people's rights at stake here. So I'd like us to build up those positive narratives and to better equip each other with ways of fighting back. And the final thing I'll say is that um, Kerry Badenoch actually wrote a great letter right across the civil service and to all the other ministers saying, we are well over-interpreting the Equality Act and the public sector, whatever it's called, duty. Uh, when I was a local councillor and people wanted to build a new loft, they had to fill out their form and they had to say what their sexual orientation was. And, uh, you know, this was just complete over-interpretation. Uh, but when you say to the civil service, you know, you don't need to do that. They were very loath to stop doing it, and then that comes down to being about jobs, and you know, we had to justify why we're all here. That comes back to a smaller civil service. Right. Okay, so I'm coming out for uh, a series of, of questions. So I saw your hand before, so I'll, I'll kind of run up this side, and then I'll come over here, and um, up the back. It, it, it's, it seems to me that there are two kind of prior problems, because every institution Okay, thanks. Could you just hand the microphone behind you? Hi, everybody. I'm Peter Sonics. Uh, I'm forced to bear for the 36 years. I say that less by way of qualification and more by way of getting out I'm going to frame what I'm going to say. I think in terms of tax and spend, efficiency and effectiveness of our civil service. Uh, my last five years were spent in Whitehall and the Ministry of Defence. I went along uh, wide-eyed, looking forward to all of that continuity, the corporate memory, the expertise, the impartiality, the professionalism, the appropriateness, and the lawfulness. Meh. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't see it. I was an irritant. 
for five years, I thought I was there for three, I was there for five. For five years, I talked about authority. Where, where are you getting that authority from? When you go to this meeting in New York, on whose authority are you speaking? Oh, what we do is beyond that. It's beyond measure. It's invaluable to the national interest. We're not going to get involved in, in, in some sort of authority, responsibility, and accountability uh, discussion. There is no plan. Uh, what did they do? We had a process mentioned. Uh, first thing is win some funds. Having won those funds, then grow your numbers, build your dependency, make yourself bomb-proof, and then win more money. Ministers may not know how far their ministries stretch and how wide they go, if only they were there long enough to find out. I saw extraordinary waste in numbers of meetings worldwide, uh, UN and associated conferences, where officials went <coughs> on their own behalf. They took the line of their senior civil servant to those meetings and brought back and reported Ministers were unaware, and I don't think it's necessarily a good thing. So, what's my point? Do we need a royal commission? In the absence of Dominic Cummings doing what he said he was going to do, and actually have a root and branch review of our civil service, and by that we include the Quangos, the BBC, uh, the NHS, let's go that far, uh, the, the wasteful elements that, that may exist out there. But I believe there's some sort of reform required. What staggered me, I'll finish here, was that the political parties and their spads never did a deep party dive. They were superficial in what they looked at, the very few people they dealt with in their inner and outer offices, and they could have learned so much more by a deep dive into their ministries to actually deliver security, health, and prosperity interests to our country. Okay, thanks. Is there, and then I'll come over to this side after that. Yes. Mark Nevison, retired former professor of forensic and biology and anthropology, had some truck with the home office through the forensic bit. And my observation would be that there are some stalwart uh, civil servants who get very little recognition. But at the other extreme, there are people that manage to stay in the civil service for decades who probably screw up more or less everything they touch. So forensic <laughs> science, the closure of the forensic science service. Yeah may be regarded as an, an example of that. Uh, but I, I just wanted to bounce back the point about politicians not really having much expert knowledge of the discipline. And I, I, I want to ask, well, surely that's also true of civil servants. I mean, they may understand the politics of the civil service, of the bureaucracy in that particular field. But to take scientific issues, for example, I anticipate that that very few have actually have any scientific qualifications or, or knowledge whatsoever. And my observation is that uh, there are a lot of arts graduates, history, English, politics, <coughs> even this thing PPE. And I'm afraid, oh I'm afraid it's not, it's not um, personal protective equipment. <laughs> it's the other kind of PPE that there's never a shortage of, unfortunately. <laughs> so my question is, wouldn't it be better if people with politics and PPE degrees stayed out of the civil service and possibly out of being practice, practicing as politicians 
PPE, I think you could just give the graduates some coloured bricks to play with and ask them not to do anything that involves telling other people what to do anywhere ever at all. Uh, that's, that's my one question. And my other question is, isn't it great news that feminists have discovered the biological differences between men and women? Because I'm sure for most of the last 40 years I was given to understand that this was biological determinism offered by a man's claiming patriarch. <laughs> Come back in a minute. Uh, yes, can the other microphone go up to the back? There's a guy near the speaker. Yes, that guy with his hand up. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Whoa. <laughs> Um, yes, I'd just like to come back to the, we've heard a bit about the sort of legal roots of this um, in Caroline, but I'd like to hear a little bit more about that. I know that Eric's colleague, Richard Nunez, tries to, has, a, has the idea that in the US, um, wokeness in an institution is basically caused by civil rights law because it gives the government a massive amount of power to sort of to redo whatever it likes. Um, and it, it, it mandates HR people, um, all of this kind of thing in the institution, which then have to take a life of their own. So to what extent is wokeness in the civil service caused by the Equality Act and uh, should we repeal it? Okay, good. Um, yes, whoever's got the microphone in the back, yes. Um, I was thinking about the two halves of what you were saying, Nick, and the sort of the comparison between what seemed a very astute and fair reasonable critique of what's going on today with your point that it wasn't always that way. You were there for an office from the 1980s and things weren't that way. You were judged on delivery rather than on, on process. Which then leads us to think, well, what is it that has changed? And in that, I, I think I would delve further into, or go further into the point that Max made, that there, don't let the politicians uh, off the hook. Not in the sense just of politicians not being able to deliver themselves, or not being clear in what they want, or not being decisive, with their civil servants, but I think there is an important, you know, political shift over that 40 years since Nick joined the civil service of uh, the sort of the, the the way in which politicians have evaded their responsibilities in a way which has also undermined state authority and also undermined, I think, the you know what we could talk about not just the Rolls Royce but the, the the public service ethos which used to be a feature of the civil service. That by outsourcing so much authority by the politicians evading their responsibilities to anybody else, uh, whether it's the quangos or the private sector or whatever, that itself I think has, has contributed to hollowing out the civil service and it's, it seems to me it's created a sort of a self a self-reproducing dynamic that the the politicians evade their responsibilities and see that you know it's not their job, they'll pass it on to the private sector. That then sort of hollows out or demoralizes the civil service who think, well, obviously they don't think I'm very important. They're giving it all to EY or PWC or whatever the concerns <laughs> of the 90s were and are today. Uh, and therefore that gives another reason so they're not going to really you know, push themselves all that much if nobody treats them seriously. And so they're more likely to say, well, in fact, I'll go off and join PWC rather than stay in the civil service because there's no future for me here. And then the politicians say, well, they're all rubbish here, so I'm going to outsource most of them, more to the private sector. So there's a dynamic there, which, uh, you know, it's a very unhealthy one, a very vicious spiral. But I think it has to then, to take account of it, is where it began. And that seems to be in the depoliticization, which we've seen from the 1980s and all those different manifestations, which then see ourselves with the cultural war being so important today. Good, very useful, thank you. If there's a, yes, just in the white t-shirt, in the, no, behind you. 
go back in the same row as the last speaker, and then I'll come back to the panel and you can pick up some oh. comments. Yes. Um, could it be? Oh, it seems to me that maybe this uh, impartial, lack of impartiality in civil servants is connected to or was caused by valid in politics these days, not that I'm old enough to remember the previous days, we view the other side, anybody who disagrees with us as evil or bigoted. So if you're a civil servant who voted away because you believe that Brexit is an evil, bigoted thing to want to do, why would you? As a moral imperative, you should be undermining that policy if you take it that it, it, you know, we do assume that it is evil. Okay, thank you. So, Caroline, anything that you want to pick up on in, in that, or, or any, indeed anything that's come before? Uh... Um, okay, I would say uh, I'm throwing something else out there. I think that you know, so much has come up, and I'm particularly interested in this sort of decline in the uh, sort of quality of senior civil service, but also politicians. And uh, so I've been involved in the Conservative Party for about 15, 20 years. And I mean, I've been absolutely horrified at the quality of some of our conservative politicians. And um, yeah. <laughs> so, so 10 or 15 years ago, I voted against having proportional representation. I thought that the two-party system served us well. But I think that both the existing parties, you've got to think there's no sort of market there. They're both just these huge institutions, and they're just unchallengeable. And so the only way to reform our political process is to actually give new parties and new thinking a chance. So because I'm very interested in solutions um, rather than grumbling, I think that's something we should all look at again, is saying, should we have proportional representation you know, with a, with a sort of 5%, 10%, otherwise you vote, otherwise you don't get in, to bring in new thinking and really challenge the status quo. Okay. Nick, anything? I mean, there's yeah, a couple of things that were reflecting on some of the points you've made, which you yeah. f- feel free to respond to, or anything else that you want there, to pick up on. There was something that came up with the, the, the young lady who was uh, in the Foreign Office. Um, uh, you know, the point was there was a bottom-up issue around people being free to kind of drive their own kind of political agenda, as it were. My answer to that is that the reason that's happening is because the leadership have lost control of the the culture of an organisation. That if if you have a system that's supposed to be impartial, uh, then you need to drive that culture from the top. That's the leadership's job, and they're failing to do it. And if they continue to fail to do it, you have to have an American system where you have to come out and acknowledge it and say, OK, let's have people who are uh, Tories uh, or Labour or whatever uh, in, 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 in SPAD-type roles. Uh, uh, the other point the lady was making at the front and the gentleman right at the back, you know, a lot of the problems... I mean, Brexit acted as a catalyst for a lot of this, and it's... Uh, I tried to talk about it earlier on. It's, you know... Um, people trying to define for themselves what the national interest is, uh, you know, and if my national interest is being a member of the EU and unrestrained immigration, uh, then I can take an impartial approach that might be conflicting with government policy of the day. And uh, we've, we've kind of lost control of that. And I mean, worse, in the situation we're in at the moment, you've got a combination of people in the civil service who hated Brexit, politicians, the rump end of the Tory party who hated Brexit, and they'll stop at nothing until the whole thing is 
trashed, basically. And they're doing a pretty good job right now. Um, uh, and, and, yeah, I mean, I also think uh, there's another gentleman who talked about the need for potential need for reform. I mean, I agree. You know, I don't think I don't ever remember being trained on the civil service code. Um, you know, let's start with some basics. And, you know, if, if, if the leadership could actually go away and have a weekend and work out whether they're obeying the civil service code, that might be quite a good start. And then um, finally, the, the point the gentleman was making, the ex-military guy, um, I mean, that's why I quoted from that letter to the Telegraph by some chap called Wellham. You know, he was saying, you have a system now where people are kind of transferred around because they're excellent generalists, very bright, no doubt got first-class degrees. They're swapped around amongst departments. Uh, but, and they are very good at engineering their own careers. But when the shit hits the fan, they're utterly clueless about what their department is actually supposed to be doing because they haven't been there very long and they just don't understand the mechanics of it and they're not, frankly, particularly interested in the delivery side of it. And then if you, if you have weak politicians on the other side of the equation... And then the final point I want to make, uh, apologies for going on, is that... You know, there has to be... Of course you can have no minister, uh, as Max was saying earlier on. Uh, I don't like that idea. I've been in this department for 25 years. That won't work. We know it won't work. Here's a range of options of what could work. But then finally, when the government, who are the elected representatives, say, we hear what you say, but we're going to do this where the elected thinks, it's in our manifesto, then you move in the civil service from questioning mode to implementation mode. And I don't think we've got much implementation mode going on right now. Eric. Yeah, I just want to pick up uh, the question about uh, that was back here from the gentleman about people moralizing politics, about seeing Brexit as evil, right? And I think that is at the heart of the problem of the growing illiberalism of younger uh, graduates in particular. There was a poll, uh, I've seen more US data, so I'm going to quote some of that US data at you. Um, white liberals, liberal meaning left-leaning in the US parlance, white liberals under age 40, when asked, people who disagree with me politically are immoral, 44% uh, agree with that <coughs> statement, compared to about 25% of white conservative Americans. So you, and, and actually, this also plays out in terms of questions such as, you know, would you live next to, would you date, would you want your ch children to marry someone of the other? Uh, and it's always at least a two-to-one asymmetry. In other words, uh, leavers are much more tolerant of their children marrying uh, remainer than the other way around. Discrimi <laughs> discrimination, would you hire? a known lever for a job. Again, it's about two to one. In, in academia, one in three academics wouldn't hire a known Brexit supporter for an academic position. So we have this huge problem, and it's been documented in academic studies, of or, or moral absolutism amongst the, the, uh, this, this emerging generation. It's a huge problem. And of course, they see Brexit then as a moral struggle, not as a policy issue. And so they're going to be very intransigent when it comes to implementing that. The only other, I want to deal with this question about Richard Hanania and the Equality Act. Doug Stokes mentioned it as well. Um, I think the law is a problem, um, but I also think, you know, coming from the academia, I can see it, where uh, 
people in academia very much want to overinterpret the Equality Act so that it, it, it basically backs their cultural socialist predisposition to clamp down on free speech. So they will essentially, uh, you know, essentially break the law, in, interpret the law in a completely different way as it was meant to be interpreted. The only solution I see is, is actually that um, we need to get very crystal clear guidance using examples uh, as, as to where the limits of equal outcome-based thinking is coming out of that Equality Act. So it's got to be subservient to academic freedom. It's got, you know, the definition of racism, of harassment, is this and not this. We don't have that kind of fine-grained guidance yet. That needs to be done and it needs to be enforced. So. Max, any thoughts? A um, couple of thoughts, just on that. I mean, I do think, you know, I'd like to be optimistic in life, <laughs> and um, you're absolutely right that the absence of very specific guidance is part of the problem with the Equality Act and how it's interpreted. I think Kirshner Faulkner at the HRC is doing a pretty good job, actually, with the new board of the HRC, of making progress on that, albeit probably not as fast as you'd like to see, <laughs> Eric. But, um, but I just think, in terms, you know, it, that is actually a testament to what happens when for once the political class goes this is out of control we need to put some people in place who understand what it is that we're trying to achieve given that we're a democratically elected government with a set of propositions does that and then the results come and this is what I mean about you know like this isn't rocket science I mean I I didn't study PPE I didn't get in so like you I, <laughs> so, so like you I think it's evil and useless and um, but I agree I agree very much with you about a lot of that I, I would say to your point about whether civil servants understand you know the actual outcomes of what their department's seeking to do some do some don't you're right that, you know, it, it, by no means is that entrenched enough and the knowledge isn't entrenched enough for civil service departments to be effective but what civil servants understand lots of very brilliant civil servants that will sat over there um, understand <laughs> is how to how to manipulate government, right? Like, I, I am in government, this is what I do, I understand how the, the machinery all gets together. Now, that might not end up in outcomes, but they understand that bit. And my proposition is that our politicians don't even understand that bit. And that's the problem. It would be, it'd be great if there were millions of chemistry graduates running base, that'd be fantastic. But if we're not going to get to that overnight, I'd at least like to get to the point where the Secretary of State and the Minister of State are base understand the mechanics of how their department works, and how decisions are actually made within government, because they don't, and that's a problem. And the only other thing I would say is that um, the chap who's talking about um, lots of very sensible industry things because he sort of agreed with me, so I thought he was great. Um, I think you make a really interesting point about the uh, impact that 30, 35 years of essential consensus around key economic questions, etc., at the top of government uh, or the polit- amongst the political class. I wonder if that is part of why and how the civil service may have lost some of the muscle memory of impartiality. What it means to be impartial in a contested political system is different to what it means to be impartial in one when there isn't really a competition of ideas. Okay, so we're coming towards the end, so we're going to have to keep the questions a little bit short and snappy if we can. I'll try. And, <laughs> how many people want to get in to speak? Right, a lot. So you're going to have to keep them very short and sharp then. Uh, I'm going to try and get everyone in. This lady here was the first hand I saw, so can you take it there? Can you give the other microphone to the guy in the front? Can I ask you about the difference between SPADs and civil servants? Because you seem to be conflating 
civil servants with special advisors, and I see them as a bit different. So when Kate Bingham was writing about Lee Kane, Lee Kane told her not to publish a paper in The Lancet about the vaccine task force to do any media interviews because she was doing more media than politicians. So he was treating her as a politician, even though she was independent. But he is a political appointee. Um, he's not a civil servant, and he's called Director of Communications in the government, but he was telling civil service communicators in the government what to do. And actually, if you look them up on the government website, the civil servant press officers, commons people, have a public interest duty. If you look at SPADS, it actually says politically appointed communications people are relieved of the public interest message because they're more political. So to what extent is the arrival via uh, Alistair Campbell was the first one and the, the Blair government of all of these political advisors? Yeah, it's a useful <laughs> question, although to be fair to Kate Bingham, she was talking about the 160 press officers in the department, uh, and <laughs> it, was a kind of, it was a kind of mind-boggling statistic that uh, uh, all these people running around wanting a quote before even anything had been done, so yeah, but I, I, I think that's a, you know, it's useful to make those kind of political role distinctions uh, and civil service distinctions, although I got Nick correctly, what your solution possibly Nick was, was to make the political element into the upper echelons of the civil service, but uh, we, can, we can come back to that. Yes? Hi, um, I'm interested in accountability, it seems that's a bit central to some of the things you've yes. saying, um, from Grenfell Tower and no consequences there, through to performance management in the department, what is the balance, the appropriate balance for civil servants so that they're protected from um, perhaps being sacked for the wrong reasons, political reasons perhaps, and being accountable and therefore potentially losing their job if they're useless. Okay, uh, where's, um, can you hand it back to the guy with the green <coughs> wristband and the other one come down this way to <laughs> the lady there with the blonde hair? Yes. Uh, yeah, as six years, I'm, I'm a young person. There seems to be a lot of kind of uh, blame here on young people with regards to civil service. <laughs> I mean, I'm not just my young person, I'm a history and politics student. <laughs> <laughs> I'm under attack here. Um, so I think it's more, you know, a lot of blame goes on to young people here, but young people don't set university curriculums for politics and stuff. This stuff is, it comes from academics. This is. I, you know, you are rewarded with first-class degrees if you agree with the stuff that the professor is saying. It's, it, it, it's, I know there's a lot of young people that that are very left-wing. They are kind of um, very moralistic. But in a lot of this, it's not just us that does it. It's a lot of it's integrated in academia. I think. Okay, thanks. I think that's a very useful point. Um, and it's, it's why I've got some sympathy with the idea of the kind of upper level institutionalisation of some of the problems of wokery or whatever you want to call it within the civil service as opposed to the blue hairs because it is almost like the, uh, you know, the, the establishment now is uh, culturally bought into this stuff and they come from some of the elite universities where as you say that's what all, that's what all the courses teach and they inhabit the upper echelons of our institution so this is a cultural thing rather than just a, uh, to my mind anyway, rather than just a kind of capturing by some young guys who waltz into the civil service and all of a sudden everything's upended, which I, I, I kind of don't really buy. Um, who's got the microphone? Yes. Uh, 
Yeah, I just wanted to um, refer to, I think it was Chester at the front, he was talking about the democratic deficit and how this is a problem. I think this is very much a problem, and I think over the last few decades, but accelerated during the pandemic, is that there's been a seismic shift in power between the state and the individual and families to make decisions that affect their lives. And this is the idea that the state knows best. It doesn't know the state best. I think we need to reclaim those powers back. Okay. Uh, person with a microphone. Yeah, just a question following what this guy in front of me just asked. Um, do you think that the older generation of civil servants might be buying into newer ideas just in order to stay relevant? Okay. Yeah. Thank you very much. Uh, this guy here, then this guy, and I think that's all we've really got time for. So, yes. Uh, Cole Cassing stop reported uh, the um, reaction of other academics to their situation. And the male academics didn't want to be involved, and the female academics said, burn the witch. So I'm just wondering, and Eric was talking about the care harm axis, which is also uh, female related. So I'm just wondering, impartiality surely about, say, white patriarchal invention should be overthrown. <laughs> yes. Final uh, comment. I, I just want to make one extra comment on the very one about spads, uh, because I vividly remember the impact of uh, the Labour government uh, uh, bringing in a large number of advisors and concentrating the farmer in the capital office, which resulted, when I worked in the farm office, in seeing that uh, the European entities stopped producing serious political insight reporting. All they were required to do was to report back on what they were told by the spads in the cabinet office to report on, and it really quite damaged the abilities or the enthusiasm the, uh, of the people involved. And I think that is one thing that we uh, should be looking at is, you know, shouldn't we make a difference in dealing with the employment of these spads? I, I talked to one once at a, a seminar on and uh, narcotics. He was 29 years old and he'd been a couple of years European and he knew absolutely nothing about drug dealing. <laughs> but he was advising. He'd <laughs> <laughs> get some drug dealers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's what went out. My moment is the Spanish have damaged the status and that's made what uh, Nick did. People think, oh, why should I? Well, I've just passed the paper job. Okay, thank you very much everyone. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for. Um, so it's just, I'm only going to be able to give you a minute, so an absolute maximum 90 seconds, just for a few final thoughts. But shall I take you in reverse order? I can't, who, who was last? It was you, Eric, wasn't it? Why don't you okay. go first, Eric? Okay, I just, I'll just take this point about it's not the young people. Um, okay, two, two points on that. First, yeah, being very left-wing is a stronger predictor of supporting wokery than being young, but being young is pretty close to being very left. Um, the other issue is you may not notice it as much because you are male. Actually, Gen Z, uh, if you look at the male-female gap on these culture war questions, it's like 50 points in this country. So, yes, it is probably young females where we're seeing this very, very powerfully. Um, so that's it for me. Okay, right. thank you. Caroline. Well, I think I would end by saying that um, what we've been discussing today is very serious. That um, wokery or the cultural wars, we shouldn't use those terms anymore. We should talk about the foundations of our society being undermined. Um, in terms of my area, gender ideology, 
we're literally undermining science. You know, the idea that we have an inner gender identity. And these old folks at the head of our civil service are buying into it. You know, where's their brain gone? Um, they're obviously scared of something. Um, we're undermining science, we're undermining free speech, we're undermining women's rights, we're undermining children's safeguarding. So I think, you know, it's a great debate today and we should all take it seriously. And I, I guess, Eric, I don't think we can wait for the government and new guidelines. So I think that we all have to play our part in challenging it. It's easy for me, I'm outside, but I think in the civil service, you should all go back tomorrow and say that, you know, women's rights matter and start challenging these woke narratives. Okay, thank you, Carolyn. Uh, Max? There's going to be a wave of civil servants emerging from this room and challenging <laughs> gender, um, and it would be a very good thing indeed. Um, no, look, on the spatter point, um, I think fundamental to what you, the story you tell, which I think is quite illustrative, is that so the role of SPAD, as we conceive of it, in sort of our thinking about government versus the role of SPAD as it is in reality is quite, has been, particularly in some departments, a wild divergence, right? So there's supposed to be a sort of person who's capable of helping Secretary of State and the Ministers of State in the department to implement the political will by doing a lot of the digging around in the department, etc., and understanding what's going on. You, do, you can't do that if you're 29 and you work in a theatre. I'm just saying somebody, I'm not 29 anymore, obviously, but who, like, you know, spent my entire 20s working in a theatre, I don't want to do fucking anything. Like, that's not what you need in those roles. I think those roles are important, but those roles need to be fulfilled by people who are grown-ups with experience of organisations and who can act in that sort of more COO role for a Secretary of State rather than being a sort of petulant teenager. Anyway. <laughs> Nick, you gave us a brilliant uh, list of things to think about to start with, so I'm going to give you the final word, uh, anything you right. want to sum up with. Well, someone talked about um, older civil servants wanting to stay relevant and picking up on wokery. I'm much more cynical about it. I think it's, it's about how to win, hold and exercise power in an organisation. Mm. That's what it's all about. It's a fantastic way of making sure that people don't question you uh, and your position of authority. It's scary. It's a sort of darkness at noon, Maoist-style approach to managing an organisation. Um, and, and, and to the poor chap who's a history graduate, I mean, it's not actually down to the young... As I've said repeatedly, it's, it's down to the leadership of the civil service to set the tone for culture. They are less accountable. They're not voted out every what, five minutes. Um, uh, and adjusting the time therefore, therefore, it is incumbent on them in a democratic system to have a respect for democracy, uh, to be genuinely impartial, and to know enough about what their department is doing to actually oversee a culture that actually delivers results that are no value for money for the taxpayer and they've got to get a grip frankly so that's